want to begin this morning with a couple case scenarios. Uh, case scenario number one, we'll, uh, we'll call this individual John. John has been a part of uh, the church for a long time. He's, he's been around uh, the church for many years. Uh, but he's encountered a, a, a phase, a season of his life where he's just, um, just doubting. He's doubting the resurrection. He's doubting uh, God's creative work. He's, he's just overwhelmed with this doubt. And so he, he decides to deal with this by asking the Lord for a sign. And he says, I would like a sign, an unmistakable clear uh, sign that, that you were there, that, that, that this is real, that this is true. And he, he asked for this sign in the coming week. He's asked the Lord for a sign. So that's case scenario number one. So case uh, scenario number two, we'll call her uh, Jenny. Jenny uh, is a 22-year-old uh, um, young woman who, who loves God with all of her heart, all of her soul, all of her mind, or all of her strength, uh, maybe a better way to describe it is that she's longing to love God with, with everything that she has. And she also wants a husband. Um, and there's a couple candidates out there that want uh, to pursue her. And these uh, individuals, these uh, young men are both godly men, and, and they both are also longing to love Jesus with everything that they, that they have. And she's going to kind of make a decision as they're both kind of interested in her in what to do. Uh, she doesn't think it would be wise to uh, spend time with both of them, especially together. Um, so she's got to make a decision. And so she asks for a sign. She asks for a sign from the Lord about who she should spend some time with. And she asks for this sign to be clear and unequivocal and, and from the Lord, and she asks for this to happen within a week. So here's the two case scenarios uh, where we're starting out with today, and we're going to turn to the Word in just a moment. And what I want to do today is I want to make the argument in this sermon out of the text of Scripture that asking God for signs in decision-making is not the way to go. This is the argument that I want to make today. It may be somewhat of a controversial argument, but it's one that I see in the scriptures. I see it in part in our passage today, but we're going to look at a variety of passages. So we, hopefully your Bibles are still open to Mark chapter 8. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 11. So if you don't have a Bible open, grab one in the chairs in front of you, Mark chapter 8. And uh, we'll pick it up in verse 11. Just before that, let me just summarize what's happened in these first chapter, first verses of chapter 8 that was just read is this feeding of the 4,000. If you're feeling like deja vu, didn't we already uh, read that? There was the, the feeding of the 5,000 just a few weeks ago. And we have another miraculous feeding of the 4,000 that has occurred. And then look at verse 10 with me of chapter 8. It says, And having sent them away... Jesus got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the region of Dalmanutha. So this is what has just happened, the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus gets in the boat, goes across the Sea of Galilee, and then we don't really have a time framework or any details beginning at verse 11. So we're not sure exactly when this happened, but it was after that. So today we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 13. It says this, The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. 
to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Now the Pharisees uh, are not friends of Jesus. They are questioning him. They are testing him. But they have also seen him do miraculous things. They have seen him uh, heal a paralytic. Say, get up your mat and walk. They have seen him or they have heard about these feedings, these miraculous feedings of thousands of people. They they know that he is working miracles, that he is casting out demons. So they don't have any issue like we might today about, did he really do these things? Well, who is this guy? Did he exist? They don't have any, any problems like that. Their problem is on whose authority and by whose power is he doing those things? So look at the text again. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. They want a sign that he is actually from God, not from Satan, not from the evil one, not from Beelzebub. We saw back in Mark chapter 3, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. This is who they have concluded that Jesus is. This is where his power is coming from. And so they are asking for a sign. Look at Jesus' response to their request. Verse 12, he sighs deeply. Does that bring anything to memory in any of you, his deep sigh? Yes, at least one of you. Last week, um, he sighed deeply. Look back at chapter 7, verse 34. That context, those of you that weren't here last week, uh, that we have this man who's hardly able to speak. He's deaf. Jesus looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, he said to him, Epapha, which means be opened. And we talked about last week how this deep sigh is Jesus looking at the way things are and mourning and grieving that this is not how they should be. And so we have a similar word. It's even a little bit stronger word in verse 12 of today's passage as he looks at the Pharisees and looks at their request and looks at what they're going on, and he's, he's sighing deeply. He says, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. And he left them, got back into the boat, and he crossed over. To the other side. So what I want to do is now give you five reasons why I am suggesting that the scriptures teach that you should not ask the Lord for a sign, whether it has to do with decision making in your Christian life or whether it has to do with the existence of God and believing the gospel. So the first one is is just coming out of this text. I'm saying here that Jesus deep sigh indicates his disapproval with this request here. That's unequivocal. Some of you may be skeptical of of where I'm going, but it's unequivocal here that he is not okay with this request. One commentator uh, writes this. He says, Jesus performed such signs only when, in the normal course of events, the needs of the people confronted him, and he responded with compassion. 
know, as we have gone through the Gospel of Mark, have we been on this journey? We have seen healing after healing and demon after demon being casted out. And Jesus has done these things as he is often on his way to spend time with his disciples or on his way to go and preach the message of repentance and to preach the gospel and to explain that he is the Messiah. We don't have a lot of his, his teaching recorded for us, amazingly. If we went back into the, the verse that was the passage that was just read today in the feeding of the 4,000, those people had been with Jesus for three days before this miracle occurs. Implication is that there has been teaching going on by Jesus for three days. And so most of his travels are to, to get to places to teach, and it's as he's traveling that he does these things. That same commentator writes, the miracles, like the teaching of Jesus, were not offered as signs to convince spectators. They were done as acts of love to people in need. They only became signs for those with humility and openness to perceive and receive the meaning. In last week's passage, uh, if you look at verse uh, 36 uh, with me, uh, he says uh, not to tell anyone about what happened. And back up at verse 33, after he took this man aside who was deaf, who was hardly able to speak away from the crowd, uh, he he took him aside away from the crowd. These are not to display to everyone. Jesus' primary motive here isn't to have the vast number of people see these miracles. The miracles are signs for those who have humility, for those who are willing to repent and believe. But these miracles are are motivated by Jesus' compassion for the people and the individuals that he encounters. So Jesus' deep sigh indicates his disapproval here. Now, I want to... say that many, uh, I want to go now to perhaps what is um, the, sorry, I'm losing my uh, thoughts here. I want to go to Matthew 12, where in Matthew's version of this same incident is recorded. Let's take a look at it on the screen. And some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign for you. This is the same event just recorded in Matthew's gospel. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. No sign is going to be given to you, Jesus is saying, except for this sign of Jonah. Why does he mention uh, the sign of Jonah? Well, one, one reason is perhaps this theme of repentance. This is what is lacking in the Pharisees and in the Sadducees and the scribes. The reason they are not able to see the healing of the paralytic and the healing of the man who was deaf as signs is because they are not willing to repent of their pride. But more so than that, the reason Jesus alludes to this as the only sign is because this is a prophetic statement about the gospel. And just as Jonah was rescued... And you see that he was indeed a true prophet. You are going to see me be raised on the third day. And the gospel is the ultimate sign for you to believe. This is what you should be looking to. Not looking for some kind of of signs to get you over whatever the obstacle is in your life. So many signs and the ultimate sign have already been given. This is my second reason why you shouldn't ask the Lord for a sign in something like those scenarios that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. Many signs and the ultimate sign have already 
been given. Now, I'll get to how do we make decisions and so on as we move forward. But let's look now at perhaps what is the most cited passage that encourages people to, uh, to, to seek out signs. Any, any guesses what I'm, where I may be going here? Yes. So, the text most cited to encourage signs, I'm arguing, is actually against, against it. Judges chapter 6. Let's take a look at it together on the screen. It, it begins uh, in chapter 6 and verse 36 of Judges. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised. And I put just this first verse up here so that we kind of focus on that. Gideon is saying to God, if you will do what you have already promised. We don't need to say to God, if you will do this, what you have already promised. God always does what he promises. Can I get an amen on that? He always does what he promises. So if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have already promised, he goes on. I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. So I don't really believe what you said. So I'm asking you to do this for a sign, putting this fleece out, and then I will know that you really want to do it. He goes on. He says, and that is what happened. Gideon rose early. This is what the scripture says in Judges 6. And that, and that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to the God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Now, does this man sound like someone that the scriptures is putting forward in this particular case for us to follow? Does this look like an example of, of great faith, of, of, of a, a paradigmatic, a prescriptive way to make decisions? I'm saying it is not. Now, God is gracious and he responds to him. And probably some of us have perhaps done something like this throughout our Christian lives, then God may be gracious and he may respond favorably to our requests. But what I am saying this morning is that the scriptures teach that many signs and the ultimate sign have already been given. And the way that we are to go about making decisions are not this way. Uh, God's one commentator writes this. He says, God's promise and Gideon's lack of faith are the crucial matters of tension in this section of Scripture. That section of Scripture is not designed as a template for you and I to, to learn how to make decisions. It, it, is, it is something else that's going on. Another commentator writes this, In any event, God stoops to Gideon's level and grants the signs requested. So this is what the Lord has done. So, that's number three. You tracking with me today? All right, number four. Signs are often invented by the sign reader and not given. All right? Some of you are smiling. You've done this. I've done this. We've encouraged people. What am I talking about here? Signs are often invented by the sign reader and not God-given. 
So let's, let's go back to something like the case scenario I had at the beginning. Uh, what did I call her? Jenny. So let's say uh, Jenny uh, goes out with one of these uh, uh, men who she thought were so godly and so on. And on their first date, they go out and, and they are walking along the beach. And the, uh, the sun sets going down. And there's these uh, clouds in the sky that are in the shape of a cross. And so this is the sign. This is a sign. This is the one for me to marry. This is it. No, no, nothing else is required. This is a sign. And she marries this person. And some years go by. And some years go by. And she ends up realizing this was not the one. I regret uh, what I have done. So many signs that we think are from the Lord are invented in our own minds and thinking. And time comes to show that is often the case. I'm not saying God can't do signs. He can. But I'm saying we often invent and read signs into where they are not, and this should not be a basis for decision-making. You get that? Okay. Signs are often invented by the sign reader and not given number five. Um, number five. Proverbs 25.2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Let's just get into this proverb br- briefly here a, a, a little. The second line here, proverbs often have two lines, or what we call parallelism, and sometimes they're saying kind of the opposite thing, we call antithetical parallelism. And so this second line is saying, uh, to search out a matter is the glory of kings. The idea here is something like this. Uh, there, there's some kind of crime that takes place in, in, the, in the kingdom. Imagine yourself living uh, in a kingdom. And, and the king is, is in charge of, of justice, and this crime has taken place. And it is the glory of kings to search out this matter, to appoint the police and the detectives, and to figure out what's going on, and to, to pursue it, to search out a matter. So the, the writer here, the scripture, is contrasting that with the glory of God is to conceal a matter. What this first line is saying is that sometimes God does not reveal why He is doing things. He is sometimes glorified when we are just simply to, to recognize that His ways are above our ways, that, that, that His ways are unfathomable, that they're beyond us. And He sometimes gets glory by not revealing exactly what is going on. Boy, probably most of us have been in a place like that. Yes? Or I don't know what is going on here, Lord. The scriptures are telling us that that is the glory of God sometimes. Now, why would that be? We don't know the specific answers, but I want to suggest that a general uh, answer here, before that, one commentator writes this. He said, God's government of the universe is beyond human understanding. Humans cannot fathom the divine intentions and operations. So how does this relate to signs and decision-making? I'm saying that transformation, your and my transformation as believers, is sometimes accomplished not through the clarity of signs, but through a divine fog. Through 
what Proverbs, Proverbs 25, 2 is talking about. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. Sometimes in life, God is much more concerned with our transformation than he is with information coming to us. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to depend on him. He wants us to cry out to him. And so sometimes he gets glory as matters are concealed. So these are five reasons why I'm saying we shouldn't do the case scenario kind of thing that I set out at the beginning of the message. So the obvious question from that then is, okay, well, what do we do? How, if we don't ask for signs, if you were inclined to do that, how do I make decisions? So just in the remainder of our time, I want to quickly go through uh, five more reasons why, uh, how we make decisions. So the first one here is that we are to obey God's word. If it speaks explicitly to your situation. If God's word speaks to your situation, we are to obey what his word says. J.I. Packer uh, puts it this way. He says, so never expect to be guided to marry an unbeliever or elope with a married person as long as 2 Corinthians 6.14, 1 Corinthians 7.39, and the 7th commandment stand. So if the scriptures speak to our particular situation, we just simply obey what the word says. The difficulty lies in the fact that so many situations the scripture doesn't speak to. Who we should marry, where we should go to college, the scripture doesn't tell us these things. And so one of, the, one of if not the primary thing that we need to do is what James 1 says is we need to ask for wisdom. We need to ask for wisdom. I want to say that instead of looking for signs, the scriptures teach that primarily we should be seeking out wisdom. We should obey God's word if it speaks to our situation, but we should seek wisdom out if it doesn't. So, a second, a second way, how do we make decisions if we're not seeking signs? We should ask the question, will this or that clear, clearly glorify God more? Will this option A or option B glorify God more? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so then whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. Our lives are, are we are here in order to bring glory to God. That is why we are here. So as we look at life, as we look at these decisions, is there one option in which I am going to glorify God more? If we think this way, we are going to begin to live radical lives. As, as we say, Lord, I want to be glorified in you. If that impacts our decision making. Ask, will this or that clearly glorify God more? So if the answer is yes, one option is going to glorify God more, then we need to choose the maximally God-glorifying option, the MGGO, all right? The MGGO. I mean, you'd think I worked for the government or something, right? Coming up with these things. Maximally God-glorifying option. Choose that. Choose that one. If you are able to see what that option is. Not long ago, I was spending time with with someone. Uh, This guy uh, just loves God, loves Jesus very much. And the Lord also gave him gifts. To, he just makes businesses grow. And this guy just makes a lot of money. And his business is growing and his business is growing and he's making all this money. And he gets an opportunity. Someone wants to buy his business. Someone wants to buy his business. Lots of money. But he is gifted and he can make this business grow even more and he can make even more money. And, and what should I do? 
and I don't think he knew uh, MGGO, but he's basically thinking, okay, how am I going to most glorify God in this decision? He still has kids in the home. He's got Lots of things that he could be doing and serving the Lord and a variety of things that he's not able to do because of his business. And if he sells his business, he's basically, he's basically able to retire as a dad with children still in the home. What is going to glorify God more? That I can grow this vast, vast amount of wealth or I can live off of this, sell this, and invest in my children, disciple them, be involved in these variety of things. And, and, and he chose the, the uh, MGGO option. We're going to make radical, beautiful decisions in life if we think about how we are going to glorify God the most. So, sometimes we ask the question, which of these decisions, option A or option B, are going to glorify God the most? And there's no real clarity that there isn't one than the other. So then exercise your freedom in Christ and just simply choose the one that you want. I don't think I've mentioned mountain biking yet this sermon, have I? I mean, I haven't even mentioned mountain biking yet. So, let's say you're going to, this is highly theoretical, but let's just say you're going to buy a new mountain bike. And there's a, a, a black one and a green one. Is one of those going to glorify God more? No. Just buy the one they want. It doesn't matter. which one. I don't need a sign from God about which mountain bike I should buy. Just, just, just do it. Just, just, just buy one. So I got a green one. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. It's really good. There is some black on it. There is some black one. So exercise the freedom that you have in Jesus. Don't stress out. If there isn't a clearly compelling reason that God is definitely getting more, more glorified if, if we do X, if we do Y, if, if, if that's not it, then, then we're free in Christ. Do what you want to do. So, this one gets a little more controversial, maybe. So, I'm still in this. If no, there's no clear option, and all the options look equally glorifying to God, then I'm going to say, and you'll hang with me here, I'm going to say flip a coin, okay? So, here's another way to say this, and I want to look at a couple passages. Acts chapter 1. Many of you are familiar with this scenario. Judas is out. We need 12 apostles. We've got 11. So, this this is the scenario in Acts chapter 1. So the apostles have got some qualified, elder-qualified men. So they proposed two men. Joseph, called Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. So the first thing, the question might be, is what does it mean to cast a lot? And the short answer is we're not absolutely sure, but probably they had these stones, like dice, you know, these stones that were marked. And they they just threw these things. If it comes up one, we're going to go with this guy. If it comes up two, we're going to go with this guy. Now, the way that this passage is, as I was reading commentaries this week on this passage, the way this passage is almost always dealt with, in the commentaries I was reading, is, well, the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2. <laughs> and so these guys didn't have, didn't have the Holy Spirit. So this is really a bad way to make a decision. Don't look at flipping a coin for making a decision. Now, my point this morning isn't that we should use coins to make decisions or cast lots or cast dice to make decisions. What I am saying, though, is different than what most of the commentators say. They, they want to run away from this. They, they're kind of embarrassed 
that they chose the 12th apostle after Judas is out this way. I want to say I'm not embarrassed. I think the situation here is that these two men are godly men who both are qualified to be an apostle. And guess what? The Lord didn't give them a sign on which one to choose. And they didn't seek a sign. Both of these men are capable and qualified to be the 12th apostle. And so in that situation, they just chose by rolling the dice, by flipping the coin. So are, are you tracking with me on this? I'm not saying the, everyone say, yeah, we're, we're going to make all our decisions by flipping coins. No. If, 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 if there's no clear, this is clearly more spiritually expedient, more profitable, more God-glorifying, then we go with that. But if not, it's okay to do that. In fact, Proverbs 16, 23 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So instead of running away from what the apostles did in Acts 1, I, I would rather say they seem to understand God's sovereignty here. They've already done the work and, and, and gotten elder qualified or apostle qualified men for this position. And so we're going to trust God just by simply casting Casting the dice by flipping the coin. So, uh, my prayer for you today, if you have been a person who has relied on fleeces and signs a lot, would be to search these scriptures that I brought up today and to think seriously and hard. Be a Berean and search the scriptures and see if what I'm saying is right. This is how the Lord has uh, directed me today. It wasn't through a sign but it was through a lot of prayer and labor and God's study. And I'm praying that, that he would uh, speak to you and to me through it. Let's bow our heads and thank him for our time together today. Father in heaven, Lord, decision-making is difficult for us. Lord, we know that we need wisdom. We know that sometimes you do miraculous things in direct and supernatural ways, even through signs. And so I'm praying that if that happens to any one of us, that we would simply follow those. But my experience, Lord, is that those are, are, are exceptions to the rule. Most of the time, Lord, we find ourselves in situations like the apostles were in Acts chapter 1, and we're not sure which one to choose. So, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us eyes to see the most God-glorifying option when options are in front of us. And help us to have freedom and joy in simply making choices when there is no God-glorifying component to any of our options. We thank you for your word today and our time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.